This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are at the end of Season 7. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Dan. Hey, David. I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf, executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. Good morning, guys. Hey, Heidi. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We also have bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio. Sometimes it's an extended discussion or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the recent developments of vaccines for COVID and the possible effect on our nation and on the world as they are released. We're going to be talking about some recent comments by several retired bishops and archbishops, and we're going to be thinking about the Christmas season. But before we do all that, Dan and Heidi, how have you all been? Heidi, what's been going on with you? Well, lots of Christmas preparation going on in our households. Based on some of our comments in the last episode, we wrote an editorial at NCR about how it's okay to move forward this Advent and just get right into the Christmas stuff. So our tree is up. We've been baking cookies doing some gift ordering online. So that's getting me in the spirit. Our our Christmas plans are going to be subdued this year, but we're planning some fun things with the kids. So that's one thing that's keeping us busy. Slower news time in the Catholic Church right now, anyway. And Dan, how about you? Yeah, just plugging along. It's been, like for everybody, a long, long year. And it's both exciting and unbelievable that we're coming toward the end of December. It's just absolutely astounding. I always feel like Advent and Christmas and December sneak up on me, but this year, all the more so. We're recording this on December 10th. It's the anniversary of Thomas Merton's death. Not that means much to many of our listeners, but to me, it's always a day to think and to be grateful for his life and legacy and writings. 
But it's another one of those instances where December 10th, how do we get into double digits in this month already? And this episode will drop into the double digits. You know, grading, David, like I'm sure you are, and keeping up with life and a lot of prayer. We just hit that drastic record of over 3,000 deaths in one day. So there's a lot going on, a lot of somberness, but trying to keep afloat. How's it going with you? This is going to sound weird to listeners that don't follow me on Twitter, but as I woke up this morning, I got the news that Taylor Swift has dropped her second album in 10 months, and that may seem like a strange milestone, but it's weird to say, but the album that came right before this, Folklore, that was released about five months ago, that was a watershed for me in the midst of the pandemic, and it has been, it's been a piece of, of art, a piece of creativity I've returned to on almost a weekly basis since it was released. It's a very powerful album, and it, it really spoke to the times, and without going too far down this rabbit hole, I'm astonished that something that is as good as folklore could be followed up quickly by something that by the I haven't heard it yet, but by what I'm hearing about it, it's equally as good in its emotional impact and weight to that previous album. I'm astonished by that kind of creativity, but I'm also it makes me feel strangely hopeful here in this <laughs> in these dark months that there are people who are still trying to put hope and good into the world. So I, I found that to be a very positive thing happening this morning. And if you're not a Taylor Swift fan, I encourage you to at least give Folklore a listen because it's a it's an album that if you think you have a vision of who Taylor Swift is, it completely shattered my vision of who I thought Taylor Swift was and it made me a fan and I'm a fan now I think for life just because she seems like an amazing creative force. But that's what's going on in my world. But in the Dalt household, we've just hung some Christmas lights. We're going to try and get a some kind of small Christmas tree. We're going to try and make the house festive, but it has been it's been a really interesting time for me because normally during these months I get a little little down and with being inside most of the time it's been hard to fight that. And so I've got a lot of extra light going on around me as I'm recording this right now. I'm surrounded by kind of four lights that kind of help with they're not uh, seasonal effective lights, but they have that same effect in that they give a, a certain type of temperature of light and they're very helpful for just keeping me buoyant during this time. Heidi, you mentioned that it's slow news time, and I'm just curious about this. Does news really move in cycles like that? Can you predict when the news is going to be fast and slow, or is it just you take these respites when they come? Well, in certain beats, you can, right? If the Vatican shuts down mostly in August for everybody's vacation, you can predict that the Vatican side of the news will be slower, for example. And things sometimes do slow down around Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. But one of the things that's been true these last couple of years, and especially under the Trump presidency, is that it's just, it is nonstop. And there certainly is a lot of really important news happening. As Dan mentioned, the number of deaths from coronavirus, the things we're going to talk about, including the vaccine. There's certainly a lot going on, but it wasn't to the same level of pace that it was in the fall with the election and then the McCarrick report and then the bishops meeting. So I'm trying to just take some respite where I can find it and catch up on long-term projects. One thing I don't miss, I taught for a number of years and this time of year, really hard to get in the Advent or Christmas spirit when it's the hardest time of the year for college professors and other teachers with all that grading. How are you guys doing on your grading? Hanging in there. So the week that this episode drops is the week of our final exam period. And yeah, on the one hand, I, I look forward to the exams, particularly in one course that's a kind of entry-level, first-level theology course for MDiv students. 
those are students preparing for ministry and, and oftentimes in religious orders ordination for our listeners. It's interesting to see how people synthesize or process or don't <laughs> some of the material, but it's different because everything's been remote. So the whole experience has been a bit odd. There's grading throughout the semester, but these final projects, final exams, final papers, as you say, Heidi, it all comes at once and you just finish. Ordinarily, you finish just in time to take one breath before you're on the move for holidays with the family and everything else. And so I always feel bad because I intend every year to be better about shopping for the gifts that I need for nieces and nephews and this kind of stuff. And this year, especially getting stuff in the mail is is proving very challenging with juggling all the grading and everything that comes at the end of the semester on top of, I think, the general anxiety and stress and exhaustion that everybody feels because of 2020. David, how's your grading going? The grading is going pretty well. We're about a week ahead of you, and so I'm at the tail end of all that. We finished classes last week. But in my life, I also am a full-time audio producer, and so I have clients who have year-end projects that they're trying to either get finished for 2020 or ramp up for the first quarter of 2021. And so I've had a lot of planning meetings and a lot of work around that. The other thing is that I got elected to be president of an academic society. It's a small academic society, but it, it deals with the materiality of Scripture, and it's been around for about 10 years. And so I'm very honored to be the new president of this society, but that has meant that I have had an extra bit of work here at the end because uh, listeners may have heard Dan and I mention this huge meeting of religion scholars, the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature joint conference that happens around Thanksgiving every year. Because of COVID, it's been a virtual conference, which means it went from being about four days to being spread out over about three and a half weeks. But because I have these new responsibilities with this small society, I've had several added meetings that I've had to be a part of and extra business meetings that I've had to be very active in. And anytime you take on new responsibilities, it takes time. <laughs> and so here at the end of the year, I'm learning how to balance all of those things in the new normal that we're in. Congratulations, Dave. Thank you. And I'm very honored. And who knows what will happen with all of this? It's always fun to take on a new adventure. But speaking of new adventures, we should get into the show. So let us take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalton and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On the last day of November, the first mass air shipment of newly developed COVID-19 vaccines arrived in Chicago on a United Airlines flight that landed at O'Hare Airport. This shipment was the version developed by Pfizer, and it is one of two that is being fast-tracked through an emergency approval process with the Food and Drug Administration. The question facing administrators in Chicago is the same as it is everywhere. Who will be at the front of the line to get the vaccines, and how soon will it happen? There is near-universal agreement that healthcare workers who have been on the front line with the virus should be at the front of the line to receive the first vaccine doses. Dr. Allison Arwadi, head of the Chicago Department of Public Health, said the first doses, which will most likely go to healthcare workers in the city, will be given very soon. But after that, there's a real fear that those with access will use power and money to push themselves ahead to receive the next rounds of doses. Back in September, Pope Francis spoke to these concerns, saying, quote, It would be sad if, in providing the vaccine, priority was given to the wealthiest, or if this vaccine became the property of this or that country and was no longer for everyone. 
It must be universal for all, end quote. David, what do you think? When the vaccine becomes available, who should get it first and will you get it? Well, let me start with that second question first. Yes, I will get it. We are vaccine boosters in our household, and we are wanting very much to be part of any process that will help to create the kind of general immunity that we're talking about here. I think a lot of listeners may have heard this term herd immunity. And one thing that's important to say is that herd immunity doesn't naturally happen. Herd immunity is a complex interaction. And I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm going to tell you what I know. It's a complex interaction of having people who have relatively good health who can get as protected as possible as a hedge to help those with weakened immune systems so that there's not a general spread through the population that hits those people at the fringes and we can have the most medical resources for those people at the fringes. Right now we have the opposite effect. We have the virus raging through all layers of population and many of our hospital sectors in many parts of the country are maxed out. This is the least possible protective situation for the least of these among us. And so that would be my answer to the question that you asked about who should get this next, is once the healthcare frontline workers are there, in my estimation, according to how I understand the kind of Catholic teaching and the way that the Pope has talked about this, we should be prioritizing the least of these among us, those who are vulnerable, not those who have resources. But that's my take and my reading of kind of Catholic social teaching. I'd love to hear what you and Heidi think. So Dan, how would you answer that question? And will you get the vaccine? Absolutely, I will. Yeah, I, number one, because I believe in science, (laughs) we could quibble epistemologically about whether it's a belief system or not. But yeah, there's just no question that once a vaccine is approved, like many public figures and trusted folks from the former presidents of the United States on down through people like Dr. Fauci and others have said that they would also receive the vaccine and do so publicly, I think, to help build trust. So insofar, if anyone's on the fence and wondering, Dan Haran, take the vaccine or not, I imagine there's zero people who will be swayed. Rest assured, I will as soon as I'm able. But David, you bring up a good point, and it's a conversation that's unfolding somewhat publicly, but certainly behind the scenes, about triaging who should receive it when. And a lot of the reporting I've seen from outlets like the Washington Post, the New York Times, have suggested that a lot of the internal administrative conversations have said frontline workers followed by, as you say, the most vulnerable, in this case, senior citizens, people in nursing homes who are immobile once, as we've seen quite tragically in numerous places, I think of the early pandemic months in New York State, if you have a, a collection of folks, dozens of senior citizens who are have previous conditions, who are elderly, who are frail, and there's an outbreak that does not end well. So it seems to me that nursing home residents after frontline workers and healthcare workers would be the first to receive it. I'll just say this and we can come back to it. There's been reporting this week as of our recording from the New York Times about the Trump administration's most recent fumbling, most recent failure in not securing the additional doses from Pfizer in advance that Pfizer on more than one occasion from the period of July through as recently as November had offered the U.S. at no upfront cost uh, a contract to lock in 100 or 200 million more doses beyond the 100 million that they had secured. And now the U.S. government seems to be interested in this, obviously, because the Pfizer vaccine has proven 95% effective in, in trials and is being administered right now in the United Kingdom and will soon be administered in Canada. That approval just came through this week. And the problem is all these other countries now, after the U.S. had turned down this offer twice, at least twice, other countries have already 
call dibs on, on forthcoming doses. There's a lot more to say, but I think it's just so infuriating to see something so simple, so obvious be fumbled yet again. Heidi, how about you? I can make it three for three because I definitely plan to get vaccinated as well. I haven't made, my husband and I have not made a final decision about our kids. I know that the testing hasn't been as extensive on whether and how safe it is for kids, but I definitely would get vaccinated. So if there's anyone out there waiting to see if Heidi Schlumpf is getting vaccinated, we can say, look, all three co-hosts of The Francis Effect are planning to get vaccinated. But we have this sort of strange two things happening at the same time, both the fight, if you will, over the limited or at least initial limited resources of the vaccine, and the Pope rightly pointing out that the need to make sure that it's distributed fairly and not just to the 1%, and not just in our country, but around the world too. So countries that weren't able to even be part of being offered extra dosages to turn down as Trump did. But then on the other hand, we have reporting or polling that's showing that a sizable number of Americans are saying they either won't or they're not sure about whether they will take the vaccine. And we need a certain percentage, is it around 75%, I believe, to approach herd immunity as a society. And yet you have some 25, 30% of Americans saying they are at least right now, not planning to to take it. And, and just to insert the Catholic angle briefly is some of those people who are saying they don't want to have the vaccine are doing so because of misinformation and, and making it part of the pro-life or abortion politics single issue thing that we can't escape um, with this idea that some vaccines are immoral if the production of the vaccine includes stem cell lines from aborted fetuses. And I, we had a bishop, Bishop Brennan from California in Fresno, who did a video saying that he had concerns about the vaccine from Pfizer because of the possibility of stem cells being used. And we've been sharing this story a lot, that the U.S. bishops, including the head of the pro-life committee, Archbishop Nauman of Kansas City, with whom I probably agree on very little, have come out, and it was actually through a memo that was obtained, an internal memo, and saying that neither the Pfizer nor the Moderna vaccines involve stem cell lines and thus are moral for Catholics to take. Just on that, I'll just add to that. This past week, the bishops of Ireland also came out with a statement endorsing and encouraging all people, including Catholics, to receive the vaccine. Like you're saying, these are outliers, and they're the typical misinformation-promoting culture warrior bishops. And it's really sad because there are people who will, as a result, risk their lives or lose their lives if they're following this anti-scientific, anti-intellectual, and foolish hypothesizing and, and kind of conspiracy theory wrangling that these bishops are interested in. And I want to make this conversation slightly more complex because there's another segment of the population, particularly African-Americans, who have resistance to taking the, the vaccine for a different set of reasons, and that is because of the long history of their populations being used for non-consensual medical experimentation and for some pretty grisly swindles around vaccines, particularly around venereal diseases over the past century. 
century. And so those kinds of things add to, I think, a real genuine skepticism about certain aspects of the medical establishment. So we're talking about two kinds of resistance here. We're talking about resistance of people who are resisting from a position of privilege in one sense or, or a position of hearsay or conspiracy theory. And then we're talking about populations that also have a history of, of not being dealt with well by the medical establishment and having a real, I, I think, uh, genuinely seeded skepticism as a result of that. Those are two different kinds of public relations battles and the uh, kind of establishment of science battles. And you said earlier, Dan, that you didn't you were uncomfortable in some ways talking about science as a belief system. But I think that in the popular culture, the general belief in science, like the general belief in the church, is predicated on the actions of these institutions. And when we have the Catholic Church having taken steps to cover up things like sex abuse scandals, or when we have the medical establishment covering up scandals with the African-American community or with other communities who are vulnerable, this damages the institutions, and that can't just be repaired overnight. So what are the things that people of faith can be doing to help not only to repair the kind of sensibilities of the laity on the ground, whether it's the science laity or the religious laity, but what can we also be doing to repair these institutions to make sure that they're actually dealing transparently with the populations that are depending on them? Well, I think you're asking a lot of questions there, David. They're all very good ones, but they're in true academic form. Let me ask one question in 27 parts. I, I, I think one place to begin about this belief system comment is to recognize that there are certain things that are interpretive, and I would say confessional belief has something to do with that. And I think in the United States context, there is this sort of individual liberty idolatry that aligns well with religious belief, right? Where in theory, at least, the Constitution says that there shouldn't be infringement on your right to exercise your belief system in a religious context. If you believe that there is a flying spaghetti monster, as people can Google about, then you're free to do that, provided it doesn't harm somebody else. That's really one of, and even that becomes a, a gray area, right? The constitutional scholars and religious scholars debate. What I mean by saying that science isn't a belief system is that the COVID-19 disease does not care about what you think about science. The same thing is true with climate change. It drives me absolutely mad. And it's one of the reasons why in my NCR column, I find myself oftentimes coming back to talk about global climate change, because we have to keep talking about it as seemingly speaking into the void as it feels sometimes. For me, I, people say they don't believe in vaccines. What the hell are you talking about? Do you not believe in gravity? Guess what? It's still going to pull you down. <laughs> Do you not believe in oxygen? Because your body still needs it to live. Do you not believe in what? You know, so you don't believe in evolution? I guess that is, is an area that you're not directly affected by. But whether you believe, quote unquote, in it or not, doesn't change the reality. And the truth is that vaccines work. <laughs> they work. And I'm not interested in hearing what people believe or not believe. This is, it's not a question. And that's, again, I get very animated about this because there are real consequences. Not that there aren't real consequences to religious belief systems and differences and debates and, and uh, arguments and fights around those, because we see that for sure. And we can come up with plenty of examples. Northern Ireland's a great example. Palestine, Israel is a great example. We can think of India as a great example of, of where these sort of conflicts continue to this day. But I, that's what I mean when I say that science is not a belief system. I well, don't know how we change the, the perspective to your other 26 sub-questions. I don't know. 
Heidi, do you have thoughts? I mean, what do we do? Yeah, I think it's a great question, a great sort of meta question. What can we do to repair these institutions, um, whether it's our church or broader societal institutions? And um, there is no simple answer except to say that information and misinformation is a huge part of why these institutions have broken down. So when you have a bishop saying that a vaccine uses stem cell lines when it doesn't. And that's one of the things there's that's fact. You can't just believe it. (laughs) Or you try to morph that into something that people can agree to disagree. Like I can believe that it does and you can believe that it doesn't. And sometimes those quote unquote beliefs are based in a hyper distrust of institutions. So Pfizer tells us that they didn't use stem cell lines, but we don't believe them because everything is a conspiracy, right? Or the bishop doesn't believe or something like that. So I, I don't know the answer except to say that countering misinformation with accurate information is one way to help repair those institutions and one that I personally am dedicated to as a journalist. I think that's a really good point. But I think one of the things we've seen in 2020, particularly around the presidential election, and even some of these points you've raised about the behavior and the comments of the U.S. bishops and other religious leaders, is that it's the horse has left the barn. In, in some sense, putting out more correct information, you see this with social media platforms struggling to try to figure out how to deal with the realities that you're naming, Heidi, of misinformation, that this is so dire. And I keep thinking about it in terms of basic, fundamental, power-driven human hubris. And we see it with politics, right? I think back to 2009, 2010, after President Obama was newly elected and was advancing the Affordable Care Act and trying to get this stuff passed for the sake of... millions of people who were uninsured and couldn't access healthcare, right? An objective good as, of course, the Catholic Health Association supported. And I think about the Tea Party movement that emerged and appeared, it was constructed and presented in such a way that it was an organic grassroots sort of movement. But we know from really important reporting, that was not the case at all, that this was a very highly funded, top-down approach by people who had special interests in the insurance industry and profit-making, all these other sorts of things. And we saw that there are a lot of members of the Republican Party who got behind that and saw that as an opportunity to weaponize information against their political opponents until it started backfiring. And you saw people like Eric Cantor be primaried out of his seat as he was, I think, was he the minority whip or something? He was very high in the Republican House structure. You saw the same thing happen where John Boehner basically decides to resign as Speaker of the House because he could no, lo- he could no longer control that. And so I think about this because these sorts of things, this sort of misinformation, this sort of pandering to these alt-right and right-wing websites and pseudo-news organizations, news in air quotes like Newsmax or OAN or these other lunatic places, in the secular sphere, political sphere, people entertain that. And until then, it's too late. They can't control them, and it it eats their own. The same thing happens in the church, and maybe this is a good segue anticipating our next segment. The same thing happens in the church when these bishops abide by alt-right Catholic lunatic fringe groups like Church Militant, LifeSite News, these other groups— or even Bishop Barron, who flirted with a lot of these kinds of groups online and endorsed people like Jordan Peterson, this famous misogynist, and, and et cetera, until these same sort of online groups started coming after him because they decided they didn't like what he had to say, and now he's all upset about it. 
I think part of the problem is self-policing, to be honest. I think there has to be, as we talked last episode, fraternal correction within the USCCB and within these political parties. Instead of cozying up to these groups because they're in the short term efficacious for your particular agenda, we got to think long term. And I think that's what's lost. And not only is there an individualism and a libertarianism, but there's a lack of long term thinking. Heidi, as you've been looking at the national scene with NCR, what is the temperature of the bishops on these sorts of questions? Do we have a consensus from the USCCB around things like vaccination, or is it really from archdiocese to archdiocese, location to location, we're seeing these kind of scattershot pronouncements from various prelates? Well, we had, as I mentioned, that memo that came from the, from I think it was two heads of committees from the USCCB. Now, I, it was obtained by Catholic News Service, but it's been disseminated through the news. So it was both the Committee on Doctrine and the Committee on Pro-Life Activities saying yes on the vaccine and that it wasn't a, a pro-life issue. I was just looking at Twitter listening to you guys talk. And I just see that the Bishop of Maine also just came out with a, a letter. So I think it will go diocese by diocese where bishops are also saying, like, it's okay to get the vaccine. I, I don't know that I've heard of any bishops or other religious leaders who are going to be getting it on camera as some former presidents are doing. But I think that we'll see some interesting ways that Catholic leaders can promote and encourage people to get the vaccine. Well, and as we get more information and we move into our next season eight, I'm sure that we'll be picking up this question again. But for right now, let's take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. With the election of the nation's second Catholic president, much attention is already being paid to Joe Biden's faith. On December 8th, the press pool found themselves at St. Joseph on the Brandywine Parish in Delaware as the president-elect went to Mass on that holy day of obligation and received communion. But because of the president-elect's views on the legalization of abortion, some Catholic leaders have questioned whether Biden should receive communion at all. Last year, on the campaign trail in South Carolina, a pastor refused to give the Eucharist to Biden, and now a retired archbishop has written an essay, once again stirring up the controversy and revealing a split among the U.S. bishops. The article was by retired Philadelphia Archbishop Charles Chaput, and argued that bishops have a right and a responsibility to consider denying communion to Biden to avoid scandal. Chaput was responding to two things. First, a last-minute decision at the U.S. Bishops' annual meeting in November to form a working group to look at how to work with Biden, with special attention paid to his stance on abortion. Following the announcement of that working group, several bishops have gone on record with a different message, that they want to try and work with Biden on areas of agreement. A number of prelates told National Catholic Reporter's national correspondent exactly that, including San Diego Bishop Robert McElroy, Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso, Texas, Bishop John Stowe of Lexington, Kentucky, and Bishop Christopher Coyne of Burlington, Vermont. But it was new Cardinal Wilton Gregory of Washington, D.C., who explicitly said that he would not deny Biden communion, and that seems to have prompted Chaput's rebuttal. Heidi, what are we to make of these new wafer wars over the Eucharist? David, here we go again. So we are revisiting what happened back in 2004 when we once again at the time had a Catholic running for 
president in John Kerry. And Shapu was very involved back then in trying to have the conference, the group of U.S. bishops, have a formal policy that would deny communion to politicians who are pro-choice or who advocate for pro-choice policies. And I think if people want to look at the Shapu's essay, they should also look at an essay that ran in NCR by our political columnist, Michael Sean Winters, in which he really takes down what Shapu is saying. So Shapu, it, it gets detailed, but he's basically saying, this is a settled issue. And he points to a letter from 2004 that went from Pope Benedict to then Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, seeming to say that, yes, we should deny communion to politicians who are pro-choice. But Michael Sean points out that letter is not on the Vatican website, and it does not make the matter a settled issue. And instead, what happened back in 2004 is that some bishops who, while very concerned about Catholic politicians' pro-choice policies, thought that denying communion was not the way to go. And the way they compromised is they had a statement that basically left it up to the local bishop, but did not come out and say, we should deny communion to Carrie and other bishops. And now we just have that kind of resurfacing all over again. Now we had it with Biden as candidate and now with him as president, I think we're just going to see that ramping up. So we've actually tackled this issue before on the Francis effect, looking at the conditions under which a person can be denied communion, and I'm scare quoting that. And one of the things as a layperson that I've been fascinated to discover is how complex this issue actually is. And there's not a way to do a blanket denial except from, I guess, the level of the Vatican. And one of the questions that comes up is, when Biden is president, who will be Biden's bishop? Because the bishop is actually the one who has the most control over these sorts of questions. And that bishop has spoken. It's Cardinal Gregory. He is the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., and as a resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, he is in the juridical and pastoral realm, geographic boundary of the Diocese of Washington, or the Archdiocese of Washington. With Heidi, I agree that kind of instant response is, here we go again. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating on a number of levels. One, I'll speak as a theologian, as a professor of theology, that it's frustrating about the kind of canonical, theological, and liturgical illiteracy of so many people, including bishops. It's worth noting, and it's not that one needs to have an advanced degree in theology to be a bishop. Many do not, including retired Archbishop Chaput. He does not have a doctorate in theology. He's one of the rare, actually, archbishops who hasn't studied advanced canon law or theology or something of that sort. And so perhaps that's the reason, though even well-informed, highly educated people can still let their opinions or emotions override basic facts. David, you referenced these earlier conversations we've had a few years back. Canon 915 is one of the most misunderstood canons in in the code of canon law. And this is case in point. Uh, I'll just quick highlight here that the church's tradition is very clear. And something Pope Francis has reiterated, it's something the great doctors of the church have made clear. It's something Thomas Aquinas himself has made clear, that Holy Eucharist communion is not a reward for the holy It is food for the journey, spiritual food for the journey. It is a, as St. Augustine says, a healing bomb, right? It is not 
uh, reward for people who are perfect. Canon 915 is there with, it's this last clause in the canon that people glom onto, people like Shapu, which is this public, obstinate persistence in grave sin. That itself, as canon lawyers and, and scholars of canon law have made clear in many journal articles and in commentaries of the code, is itself ambiguous, right? It's law in other contexts, and it is meant to be interpreted. But it's there primarily for the first part of that canon, which talks about those who are under interdict, which is a declared, we'd say, remedy or punishment resulting from a canonical trial, or formally declared excommunication, which is a result of somebody's moving outside of communion and that being acknowledged by a local ordinary. And so the fact that it's being, the Eucharist is being presented as a reward for those who are perfect or meet some sort of external criteria that Shapu himself is creating, or that it's being used as a political weapon, which is really what's going on here, is offensive in its idolatry. It's taking the Blessed Sacrament and using it for something other than what God through Christ in the Spirit intends it to be. I want to ask a follow-on to that because what we're seeing is, and we've talked about this before, Shapu is speaking from a position that looks like he has authority to make this kind of pronouncement. Like the way that he's presenting these kinds of statements, these kinds of letters, it appears to the laity as if this is a bishop making a pronouncement for the whole church. One of the things that you pointed out in your answer, Dan, and one of the things that I want to emphasize to listeners is that bishops have local authority, even archbishops. And the local authority of answering this question, as you just said, Dan, rests with the bishop who is presiding over the diocese where Biden will be. And at this point, that bishop has spoken. But yeah, I'm but wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. I just want to add, too, though, that Charles Chaput does not have any kind of canonical authority anymore. He is a retired archbishop, and his successor, Bishop Perez, is the ordinary of Philadelphia, the diocese that Chaput used to be the archbishop of. And so the fact that he's screaming and yelling in this article is practically speaking immaterial, right? He has an audience, but he and he has influence, but he actually cannot impose any sort of enforcement of these ideas. Yeah, but I think what he's trying to do is rally those current bishops in the US who would agree with him. And I think what we see there is him becoming this leader of the culture warrior type bishops who want to make this a big issue. And let me just step back for a minute and say, yes, bishops have teaching roles. And Bishop Chaput can write any essay that he wants in his role, even as a retired bishop. And yes, it would be nice if Biden and the Democratic Party's positions on abortion were more moderate, in my opinion. But that said, I do think that the reasons given for the need to move forward with this more confrontational relationship with Biden are false. So this idea that it's causing scandal to not deny communion to Biden is ridiculous. There's a lot of things that everyday Catholics are scandalized about, and it's not that in terms of the church. And then the other point that the that Archbishop Gomez made in announcing the working group at last month's USCCB meeting was that it was causing confusion to the faithful that if they didn't take a strong confrontational stand against Biden and his abortion positions, political positions, that people would be confused. People are not 
confused about the Catholic Church's teaching on abortion. I am pretty sure on that. There's a lot that Catholics don't understand or that everyday Americans don't understand. But one thing they do know is that the Catholic Church is against abortion. (laughs) So this idea that it's causing confusion and scandal, I think, are not the real reasons why, but they're the stated ones. Just picking up on that, to talk about scandal in a theological sense is scandalon in Greek. It's a stumbling block. In other words, it is something that gets in the way, inhibits somebody's faith or their belief. And quite frankly, I'll speak as a person of faith that seeing people abuse the Eucharist, like Shapu is suggesting, is a scandal to me. It's hard for me to reconcile that with what we say and what Christ says in terms of his life, death, and resurrection, what the model of our ministry, what the model of our church is supposed to be, and the table fellowship that Jesus kept. It's just so obscene in my eyes. So I agree with you, Heidi, and I appreciate that point too, that it is a rallying cry that he's serving as a quote-unquote elder statesman of the culture warriors, and he actually does have in some ways, he doesn't actually have a right to exercise teaching authority because he doesn't have a diocese. There are no people who are he's obliged to be a pastoral leader for. However, he does have a megaphone, he does have a a platform, and he actually has the freedom of not having that responsibility to be more perhaps direct in his opinion. So we've been talking about the kind of technical and theological questions here, but I think that there's another level to these questions, and that is the level of catechesis. Because I'm dealing with students who, before I taught at Loyola, I taught at a small Catholic college down in Memphis. And I have former students who were very traditionally minded students who I still interact with on social media. And I see them parroting these kinds of ideas of Biden is excommunicated. And I try and patiently correct them and say, that's not correct. And you're repeating this is actually the scandal, not treating your baptized brothers and sisters with their self-respect and good name intact is actually a scandalous act as defined by canon law. And so trying to to patiently teach is one role that educators like Dan and I have, but I'm wondering what parishes can be doing to help at the level of meeting the local flock to try and help people understand this very basic question that you said a moment ago, Dan, the Eucharist cannot be a weapon. It can't be used as a way of saying, I'm in, you're out, ha ha. But that is how we see it being used, not only at the level of the laity, but at the level of the bishops. And that to me is the scandal. But I think this is the problem because it it follows from our previous conversation about vaccines and conspiracy theories and misinformation. As long as you can have these sort of rogue individuals like Father Altman from Wisconsin who can have a video that gets millions of views and he's got a Roman collar on and they've got some production value with music and cutting and editing and this sort of stuff, that can be very persuasive. And so Shapu plays a similar sort of role. Others do too. The thing that kills me in terms of irony is something you just said, David, which is, I think, true. A lot of these people, these culture warriors, the Shapus, the Stricklands, etc., they fancy themselves, quote unquote, traditionalists. They fancy themselves as people who want to preserve and protect the tradition. The irony, of course, coming from a theological perspective, is that they're in stark contrast to the teachings of Augustine, Ambrose, Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, these doctors of the church and the foundation of our theological understanding of what the Eucharist is and what liturgy is supposed to be. So I don't want to hear it. Hypocrisy, again, is startling. And I would just add from a purely sort of strategy focus, I just would question whether this is the right way to go about looking at the new administration 
there are a lot of areas of agreement that the bishops are going to find themselves with the Biden administration that they didn't have with the Trump administration. And maybe that's a better place to start than like full on confrontation. I could be wrong, but that's how I work as a manager. And it seems like it might work on this national level as well. I also don't think it's a very good strategy in terms of actually addressing the issue of abortion to just have these internal fights. Why not go to Biden or a Biden administration and try to work with a Biden administration to try to decrease the number of abortions or to get some limits on abortion or something like that? And I don't think it's a good strategy in terms of how we're presented as a church and infighting, who's in, who's out, technicality kind of group is not something that's attractive to people who are looking for hope and light, especially in the middle of a year like this one. So I don't know. That's not the strategy I would take anyway. What do you think, David? So I agree with you in terms of building bridges instead of burning them. And with a church that has a billion adherents in cultures around the world, a truly global church with a truly global set of cultures underneath it, The idea that we could have a kind of lockstep, Eurocentric, kind of American values, traditionalist church in every corner of the world simply is not a logistic possibility. But I think that more than just the logistics of trying to get everyone on the same page, and I'm scare quoting that about these certain kind of how these beliefs play out on the ground, I think that there's a deeper problem here, and it's one that we've been talking about throughout these conversations. It's a problem of hospitality. What is the church for and who is the church for? And you mentioned Augustine, Dan. I'm thinking about the questions that Augustine wrestled with regarding hospitality, who's in, who's out. Who gets to receive the the Eucharist? Who gets to to baptize and who gets to be a priest? All of these questions were settled in the three and four hundreds, and they were settled, in my understanding, on behalf of hospitality and with the idea that forgiveness and inclusion and healing is the work of the church, not becoming some kind of exclusive club. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't know if they were entirely settled, but I think the foundations were laid. And of course, that's what we believe, as as St. John Henry Newman makes clear, as Augustine himself made clear in his own time, that doctrine develops. And just because it was said in the 300s doesn't mean that it's done. What it means is that it's continued to progress and develop and become clearer. Anselm famously said in the 11th century that theology is fides corns intellectum. It's faith-seeking understanding. And I see two things. One is you know, what Robert Bellarmine in the 16th century, a great Jesuit bishop and and theologian, they they were still 400 years ago grappling with this idea, how do you know if somebody is an actual Catholic or a good Catholic, quote unquote? And he came up with some visible markers of communion, but they were just stand-ins, as it were. The truth is, and this is part of what makes the Code of Canon Law complicated around this question of access to the sacraments, and the extreme circumstances in which a minister of the sacraments would deny somebody the sacraments has to do with things like internal forum, has to do with things like one's internal state of their faith, their relationship to God, the relationship to one another, etc. And to make some sort of visible statement based on what you assume by hearsay, to use a legal term, is scandalous. It is a stumbling block for believers. And I'll say one last thing, which is, the again, the layers of irony are so deep that it's absurd that Jesus, according to the Gospels, our inspired word of God, 
Jesus is remembered to have been criticized by religious leaders of his own time and by others, outsiders, for having associated with, dined with, experienced hospitality of people who were public sinners, grave public sinners, adulterers, tax collectors, treasonous folks. And yet this is whose side are people like Shapu on? The side of Jesus Christ? I would argue based on his remarks, absolutely not. That is a scandal to people's faith. And one of the things that you've pointed out in our conversations, both on and off the air regarding canon law, is that right there in canon law, it says, this is designed for pastoral purposes. It's designed for the salvation of souls. It's designed for the kind of forgiveness and inclusion that we're talking about. And I think oftentimes people, again, are using canon law as a way to try and create these kind of winnowing moments of you're in, you're out, instead of these kind of inclusion moments of I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, let's walk together and let's go on the journey of healing to the healing balm of Christ. As we're coming to the end of the conversation, I want to just ask Heidi, we've talked a lot about the fact that the Catholic Church in America right now is a single-issue church in its public relations. Do you see any indication in reporting, as you're looking at this on a national scale, that there are any possibilities in a Biden administration of moving away from single issue around abortion to being a more nuanced sort of approach to the many societal problems that we're dealing with right now? Yeah, maybe I'll take a hopeful ending last comment here in keeping with the season. So yeah, I think I do see some hope of moving from that in the bishops that you mentioned in your intro there, David, a number of bishops, many of them appointed by Pope Francis and by and Pope Francis himself, while clearly very pro-life, very much seeing abortion for the evil the church teaches that it is, but focusing more on accompaniment and that hospitality that you're talking about. So I think among our religious leaders, there's a reason to be hopeful. There's not enough of them yet, so I don't think we're there yet. But I'm also hopeful just because of the Biden administration. So I was really touched by seeing Joe Biden go to church on Immaculate Conception. And this is a guy for whom his faith is part of his life. This is not for show. And we have not had a church-going president like this in a long time. I think go back to Jimmy Carter, probably in terms of like actual practice of the faith in such a regular way. And so I think it's a possible evangelization, could we even, new evangelization, could we call it, that we might see from Biden inadvertently just because of who he is and his relationship to his own faith. I'm hopeful there. On that note, we're going to leave this segment for now. I'm sure we'll come back to it more in season eight. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Ho, ho, ho. When this episode drops, it will be a little more than a week until Christmas. Ordinarily, this solemnity in the Christian tradition faces a number of challenges, from the increased commercialization of the holiday and the growing pressure to buy, to the stressors that many individuals and families face when confronted with organizing get-togethers and negotiating complex family dynamics. This year, we have all those traditional concerns and obstacles, along with a global pandemic to add to the list. 
With cases and deaths continuing to rise across the United States, and many Americans having flouted recommendations from health experts to stay home during Thanksgiving, the Christmas season is shaping up to be extraordinarily difficult on many fronts. Dan, as a Franciscan priest and theologian, you probably have a lot of thoughts about the meaning of Christmas. How are you thinking about the holiday this year? Yeah, I have many thoughts. This will come as no surprise to our listeners. I have many thoughts about lots of things. I I think first and foremost, from a theological perspective, I I think Christmas is underappreciated in the liturgical year and in our kind of collective Christian imaginations. And I don't mean imaginations as in playing pretend or fairy tales. I mean how we see ourselves, the world, God, Christ, and, and so forth. And what I mean by that is, like you said, Heidi, there are all these pressures that exist in normal times. Part of it is just the the timing of Christmas at the very end of a calendar year. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's short days, long nights, cold winters. What follows in the U.S. context very shortly after Thanksgiving, which gets a lot of attention. And so everything seems really backed up in my eyes, schedule-wise, energy-wise. So Christmas gets short shrift in general, but I also think it gets short shrift theologically, right? I think most Christians understandably look to Easter should be, ought to be, in some ways, the pinnacle of our liturgical year. The resurrection is what makes Christianity make sense. But I'm drawn to all the things that make Easter possible, and it begins with what we celebrate on the 25th of December. It is, to use a philosophical phrase, it is Christmas is the condition of the possibility for Easter. And I'm reminded of an early narrative that's collected in the early sources of the Franciscan tradition of those friars who knew Francis of Assisi in, in his lifetime. And in one of those stories, there's a recounting of how Francis used to say regularly how while, and I'm going to paraphrase here, while our salvation was assured by other feasts of the liturgical year, thinking of Easter in particular, he said that wasn't made possible without Christmas, and therefore Christmas is the highest of all solemnities. People might think of Francis of Assisi and Christmas, and they think of the Christmas crash. He's given credit for kind of inaugurating these tableaus that people perform in live person around Christmas Eve or this sort of thing, especially schools with children, or even the little Christmas crushes people set up on their mantles. And so that's all true, but there's a deeper and more profound found insight that I think is worth thinking about, and that is incarnation, that God became human. And during this season in particular, I'm really drawn to reflecting on what the implications of that are. And, and one last thing I'll say just as an overview is that in a time where our humanity's frailty and vulnerability is on full display, I think solidarity with the Christ child is to stay home and to stay safe. And I think that's hard for a lot of people in this holiday season. But I think actually Christmas challenges us to do exactly that. And I want to return to a couple of terms that you just used, because I think sometimes as lay people, we don't always understand how the church views time. And so if you could quickly, Dan, just remind listeners what we mean when we say something is a feast, something is a solemnity, and something is a season, just briefly on each of those. Sure. So we we shared in the last episode when we talked about Advent that the church's liturgical year does not follow the calendar year. It begins uh, with the first Sunday of Advent. And so you have a new set of readings for the whole year, particularly on Sundays as well as on weekdays, but they are two different sets of readings, two different cycles. And it goes from Advent 
to Christmas. There's a Christmas season. The feast of Christmas itself is actually eight days long. It's called an octave. It is an eight. And that means that Christmas doesn't end on December 25th. It begins on December 25th and continues for several days thereafter. We move then into back into ordinary time for a brief period. And then the season of Lent comes upon us. We have this unique, very short liturgical season of Holy Week, where we commemorate a number of the the last moments of Christ's earthly life. And of course, that culminates with Easter, which itself is a solemnity. It's celebrated like Christmas with an octave. There are eight days of Easter. And after that, we have what's called the Easter season. And that leads to Pentecost with the sending of the Holy Spirit and then back into ordinary time. And what what that means is there's a rhythm, there's a pattern to the church's life that's centered around the life of Christ on the one hand, and, and the kind of key moments in the founding of the church and of the church's formation and of our identity as Christians. So like Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit is considered the birth of the church. And the solemnity is the highest kind of celebration we have in our church. And Christmas and Easter merit what are called, again, octaves. That means that one day is not enough to celebrate the solemnity. You celebrate it for eight days. And those who pray the Liturgy of the Hours may not always be excited about that because every morning you pray the same psalms from the first Sunday of the four-week cycle. And in the one volume in the English translation, it's page 707. And so everybody knows that. But the idea is that there's something different. The rhythm is is broken because it's so important. And David, you said that exactly right, that we relate to time differently. and, And it's intended to slow us down to emphasize certain elements of our Christian faith. And so Christmas and Easter are the two high points, without a doubt. But I think Christmas, for all the reasons Heidi mentioned, and for part of it is it gets, frankly, I think, reduced in the Christian imagination to a birthday party for a little baby. Isn't this cute? Mary swaddling the infant child and the wise men come and the shepherds and the angels. Isn't this adorable? And it's, I think, reinscribed by the well-meaning and in lovely pageants that schools and parishes often put on. But that that infiltrates, I think, our mind, our thinking, our imagination. And we forget about the profundity of a God, as we read in, in the letter to the Philippians, who humbles God's self so much, empties God's self of all that power and control and almightiness that we're so fond of thinking about God, to enter the world not only as a human being who is vulnerable and fragile and, and capable of being executed as he ultimately will be in adulthood, but as an infant baby, right? It's not like Jesus appeared like a Roman God as a human in his 20s or something. God needed us, literally, needed Mary to nurse him, needed his parents to change him, needed the love and affection of the local family and the broader community. That's really striking, and I think it gets lost too often. So I appreciate the question. It's part of a rhythm, but I think Christmas, while well-meaning, gets sucked into the commercialization and our kind of lack of robust Christian theological imagination. Dan, I'm one of those people who was guilty of maybe not giving enough attention to Christmas because I grew up in a parish that did emphasize the importance of Easter as our highest holiday. And it it wasn't because we were big atonement theology folks. We just saw the the importance of resurrection. And and also it was a countercultural message to try to point out a holiday that wasn't as commercial and its importance theologically to one that had been become secularized in many ways. But later in life, I've reclaimed some of the importance of Christmas theologically and this idea of incarnation. And this year, it's been very interesting for me because the forced slowing down that has been 
a result of the pandemic and of pretty strict quarantining on the part of our family. I think back in March, I started with a Facebook diary where every day I noted what I did that day or what our family did that day as a way of paying attention to this very bizarre time. We had told our kids, someday your grandchildren are going to ask you about what it was like in 2020 to live through the coronavirus pandemic. And that exercise has really forced me to celebrate the mundane, made beef stew for dinner or what went for a walk with my daughter or something like that. And this history that I have with some feminist theology and feminist spirituality had already attuned me to the importance of paying attention to how God breaks into the everyday of our lives. And so this year, I'm really paying attention to that in the Christmas season about how God came to us in the everydayness of being a baby born in a stable and how in our everyday lives, as boring as they may be right now in 2020, we're also experiencing God's presence. That's so important. I think it's also, I appreciate that, Heidi, because I, I think it also speaks to this lack of appreciation, I think more broadly among Christians, for the significance of the incarnation. I hesitate even, I don't have any beef with the word Christmas, but because it becomes so secularized and commercialized, people hear Christmas, they immediately think of bright lights on trees and Christmas shopping and music and Mariah Carey and all this kind of stuff, which is fine. But if we, what are we actually celebrating? We call it Christmas. We call it Easter. We're actually celebrating the resurrection. On Christmas, what are we actually celebrating? The incarnation. And isn't it interesting that 50% of our four canonical gospels mention nothing about the birth of Jesus? And the other two have differing reports, but they're still relative to the rest of the content of the gospels, very brief. And as scripture scholars were talking about this, they'll talk about the hidden life, the hidden years of Jesus, which account for almost his entirety, his entire life, 30 plus years, they estimate. I, I like at Christmas time to think about what you were talking about, Heidi, the kind of mundane banality of life. The fact that little baby Jesus very likely got sick. You know, he had cold, he had an upset tummy. Some of those diapers or whatever they were using in the first century were not easy to clean up and were not pleasant. Luke's gospel gives us a little glimpse when there is this snafu, right, where Jesus is disobedient to his parents. And I think oftentimes we brush the divine paint over what's going on there. But if you, there's a way to go back to Luke chapter four and to read the exchange between Jesus and his mother in particular, and to see a tween, he's estimated to be about 12 years old, scholars say sometimes. Those of you who are parents of 12-year-olds know that, yeah, as Heidi, you are, <laughs> the sarcasm, the snarkiness, the rebelliousness. And I don't see why Jesus, who is 100% human like us, right? Yes, we also know 100% divine, but let's not lose sight of the humanity of what it's like to learn, to make mistakes, to mess up, to get ill, to be vulnerable, to be a normal human being. And if Christ isn't that, then we're not saved, right? That's what the ancient theologians, the desert fathers and mothers, the Eastern Cappadocian fathers famously said, what is not assumed is not saved. And so if he is not experiencing that full range of humanity, then our full humanity is not saved. I love the direction that this is going, because in talking about the incarnational aspect of the baby Jesus, Jesus came to save us, and we focus on that. 
But what I love about this aspect of the conversation is Jesus's vulnerability in those years that are unspoken of in the Gospels. Heidi mentioned this time being a time of reflection. I've been reflecting a lot on the idea of mutuality, of mutual aid, of how we are saving each other in being there for one another and bearing one another's burdens and in that way fulfilling the law of Christ. And I think that's a message that Christ is teaching us as much as what Christ is doing on the cross. Christ's willingness to be vulnerable, willingness to be needy, willingness to weep, willingness to have friends upon whom he depended and upon whom sometimes he was frustrated. Like these very human aspects, I think, are bound up in the Christmas story as well. It's not simply a matter of some beatific child who never cries glowing in a manger. It's a real child, which, and and we mentioned that Heidi's a parent. I'm also a parent of an 11-year-old, and I'm beginning to see some of this stuff as well. Like, it is a real work to bring a child and rear them in the way that they should go. And Mary and Joseph had those responsibilities. When we look at Jesus on the cross, I'm going to say that we're seeing as much a reflection of the faith of Mary and Joseph and those around Jesus who shaped him as we're seeing the faith of Jesus in that moment. And the faith of Jesus, of course, is salvifically powerful, but all these other interdependent faiths, these mutual faiths that shaped Jesus, I think are as important to the story. And what I love in this conversation is that we're starting to touch on that, the fact that Christmas is a time of mutual and interdependent love. Christmas is a time of mutual and interdependent vulnerability. That's really beautiful, David. And I would just piggyback on that and say a lot of people will be struggling this year about how we're going to express that mutuality and that love and even that hospitality we were talking about in the last segment because of the restrictions with the coronavirus. So we were talking about it in our family about how we're really big on traditions here. If you do something twice, it's a tradition that you must always do forever in the same way. And one of those traditions is my sister, my mother and I and various children, young and adult, get together and bake cookies together in this massive cookie baking spree held on a weekend. And we had to change that this year. And we won't be going to in-person mass at Christmas. And we were just talking at the dinner table last night about how strange that will be and what can we do to be flexible, to be to be pro-life in a way that protects ourselves and other people in not spreading a deadly disease, but still have some of our Christmas traditions and be flexible enough to do them in different ways. So keeping those ideas, I like that idea, thinking about mutuality. Is, will be a, a key value. Yeah, I appreciate that too. I, I also think about it in a way, and I, I've written about this and, and maybe even talked about this in an earlier episode or two, that this interdependence among us extends beyond just the human family. And actually, there's a lot of work by Catholic and, and other Christian theologians these days on what's sometimes called technically deep incarnation, this recognition that you know, following from this ancient axiom of what is not assumed is not saved, meaning what God becomes is what is experience of salvation. John's gospel famously does not say that the word became human or that the word became a man. It says that the word became sarx in Greek, flesh, which is just materiality. And that sarx is not in its origins differentiated between human or non-human tree or squirrel or whatever. 
and I think there's something there too that builds on what Heidi, you and, and David were just talking about with mutuality. To think as I do, maybe an interesting way to slow down and think about the importance and the power of Christmas is to think about the breaths that Jesus took, that he needed the oxygen that came from plant life or the food that he ate. We have lots and lots of instances in the Gospels of table fellowship, most famously, of course, the Last Supper. But he wasn't eating just by show. That's a heresy. That's an ancient heresy that he was pretending to be human. He either was fully human or he wasn't. And as a tenet of our faith, we say he was, and therefore he was deeply interdependent on other people, as we talked about changing the diapers and so forth as an infant and and throughout life, participating in the hospitality of others in his public ministry. But also, He was interdependent with other creatures and the rest of creation, just as we are. And so I think that fragility, as hard as it is, I I like to think that in this Christmas season, God knows because Christ experienced what it is on some level, what we're going through, what it's like to be distant, what it's like to suffer, to make tough choices, to do the right thing in the face of excruciating suffering. And I think a lot of people will be forced to make tough choices this Christmas. And I think God understands and, and Christ understands and God supports us in this so that a form of mutuality might look very different this year than it ordinarily would, like you're saying, Heidi, like you're saying, David. And I can't help but, but think again about how the best way to show your interdependence and love for your loved ones and for strangers alike is to minimize the risk of in, you know infecting others and infecting oneself. So I just want to say how grateful I have been for this season. Heidi, thank you for joining us on this adventure, and we're looking forward to more seasons with you joining us. But I just want to say to both of you how grateful I am for your friendship and for this time, and even virtually being able to see you. It's been a real joy for me, and I'm, I'm just very thankful. Merry Christmas to you both. Same here. I had no idea this was going to be so much fun, and I'm really looking forward to next season. It's been great connecting with both of you. I hope you have a, a blessed holiday. Likewise, always great. I can't believe we're wrapping season seven. And I'm also looking forward to the new year and the new season eight. And and Heidi, I echo David's enthusiasm. We're delighted to have you. I've loved this season very much and look forward to what's to come. Christmas blessings to everybody. And I wish you all a happy, safe, healthy, and hopefully more joyful new year than we've had this current year. So good riddance, 2020. Amen. And to all of you, our listeners, thank you. And Merry Christmas to you and blessings to you for the new year. And know that you are in our prayers. We will be back with you soon. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various locations around Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to 
to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes now spanning seven full seasons that you can go back to listen to, all for free on our website. Heidi, Father Dan, and I will be back in a few weeks with Season 8. We're looking forward to joining you then. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.